One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. I also have to say, I don't know, guys. I don't know. I burst into tears reading these articles. Having a conversation about this stuff without getting incredibly upset seems impossible on most days. It does. This is Sarah. This is Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Hello, everyone. Today, we are sharing everyone's favorite Pantsuit Politics episode of 2019. It's really like a combination. The resounding winner was the five things you need to know about abortion. But what we've done is we took the five things and then we took our discussion following the five things, put them together for y'all in one episode. We don't really want to wrap up 2019 talking about abortion. I don't ever want to talk about abortion again as long as I live personally. But listen, Y'all spoke. And I think you're right. This is a conversation that is looking for new directions. And so, listen, democracy speaks and we listen. So that's what we're sharing here today. Before we talk a little bit about this episode and kind of where you all landed and share it with you, we want to remind you that we have another Democratic debate coming up. And Sarah will be watching it with you on Instagram. Listen, I can't watch this debate live because I wish to remain married. (laughs) My husband, long ago, purchased Star Wars tickets. 
during the debate. And I just have to go. There's just not any way around it. Chad was like, that's not even a conflict. Why are you bringing this to my attention? (laughs) He feels so strongly about this. So I'm going to go with him. Then I'm going to watch it. And then we will record our analysis the next day. But watch it live with Sarah on Instagram. Tune in on Friday for that and kind of our year-end wrap-up discussion. And thank you all for helping us select these episodes. You definitely took this in a direction that I would not have. And that's really helpful to us. Again, I'm exhausted with this topic. However, throwing back to our last episode, I do think there are positive trends. I do feel like this conversation is evolving. I like to think that we are a small part of that. It feels less intractable. It feels less, I mean, there's definitely people out there that are not going anywhere. That's fine. But I don't know if it's the presence of more women willing to share their personal stories. I don't know if it's the fact that there have been like real and troubling legislative changes with regards to this topic. But it does feel different than the conversations I was having about abortion in college. And, and I think that is, is a good thing. It's definitely hit home for me as we've spent time traveling across the country that this issue still is a defining one for lots of people, or at least it comes across that way in conversations. And it's really difficult to have a discussion about anything of significance without at some point either hearing someone say, but about abortion, or hearing in your own mind, like anticipating that argument coming up, which I do all the time. Mm -hmm. I know the next thing is going to be, but about abortion. And I think there's something important For me to reflect on in the fact that you all decided that you liked these episodes best when I feel such a sense of wariness about it as you were describing, Sarah. And I I do think that's encouraging. And I think approaching this topic, just trying to find a little softness around it, trying to find a little bit of gentleness for other perspectives, trying to get as much good information as we can about what our laws are and how we got there is good work to do. And so I'm I'm happy that we did this work and I'm really happy that y'all have embraced it. So without further ado, here are the five things you need to know about abortion. Welcome everyone to today's episode of Pantsuit Politics in which we're going to tell you the five things you need to know about abortion law. I'm going to be real with you. We've crammed a lot into each of these five things. This might be more, yeah, it's like, more like 15. <laughs> the 30 things you need to know about abortion law. But we're going to do that because we know that many of you have been waiting for us to discuss new laws passed in Georgia and Alabama. And so today we're going to set up just the facts, not our opinions. Here's what we need to know about where we are. And then on Tuesday's show, in our main segment, we will talk about what we think about all of this. So we hope that you'll hang with us as we get through a pretty intense, but I think important background discussion. I'm going to be real with you, though. I'm going to be real. I got some pretty big feelings. They might bubble up in this episode. Just forewarning. Spoiler alert. And without further ado, here are the many things you need to know about abortion law. So number one, let's do just a quick rundown of the long and emotional history in the U.S. that Roe v. Wade didn't stop, but really just intensified. We started with English common law. So in England, when we came over here and started this 
experiment we call America, abortion was not permitted after quickening, which we understood as just when you could start to feel a baby moving around about 15 to 20 weeks into pregnancy. In Great Britain in 1803, abortion became illegal, and you started to see anti-abortion statutes popping up in the United States in the 1820s. Many historians think that these statutes were actually about safety, not about ethical concerns. But as science advanced and we learned more about how human beings develop— Many physicians realize that quickening doesn't mean a whole lot, that human beings begin to develop and it's just a continuum throughout the whole pregnancy, but that wasn't a line that really changed what was happening. And physicians quickly became the loudest voices against both abortion and contraceptives. Now, there could be a lot of reasons for that, and many of them were economic, right, instead of ethical. But that's where things landed. Other factors that influenced the rise of anti-abortion laws were the increase in married women seeking abortions. For a long time, people understood that abortions were being sought by unmarried women who didn't wish to be pregnant. But when married women started seeking abortions, it made everyone very nervous. The women's right movement also made a lot of men very nervous, which led to a rise in these laws. And I think this is so important. A number of early feminists opposed abortion, but not because they didn't want abortions to happen by a matter of law. They said, we need to get to the root cause here, which are men who force women into pregnancies, leading to this necessary but undesirable procedure. So by 1900, abortion was a felony in every state. And then you start to see some shifts over the course of the 20th century. In 1967, Colorado was the first state to decriminalize abortion in cases of rape, incest, or which in which pregnancy would lead to permanent physical disability of the woman. Then California, Oregon, North Carolina followed suit. In 1970, Hawaii became the first state to legalize abortion on the request of the woman, and New York allowed abortions up to the 24th week of pregnancy. So by the time Roe v. Wade was decided in 1973, abortion was illegal in 30 states. 16 states banned abortion except in the case of rape, incest, and a health threat to the mother. Three states allowed residents to obtain abortions, and New York allowed abortions generally. So Roe considered the right of privacy, which it said includes the right to have an abortion, against state interest in regulation. And it decided the 14th Amendment protects a woman's right to have an abortion, but the state also has an interest after viability in protecting fetuses. This is a quote from the opinion. State regulation protective of fetal life after viability has both logical and biological justifications. If the state is interested in protecting fetal life after viability, it may go so far as to prescribe abortion during that period except when it is necessary to preserve the life or health of the mother. So Roe versus Wade made everybody unhappy, essentially. It said there is a right to an abortion It is a limited right. And this was a 7-2 Supreme Court decision, which I think is really significant. And if you look at polling over time, which we'll talk more about in a minute, Roe versus Wade is kind of reflective of the complexity of how most Americans have historically felt about abortion. You see that over time, around 50 percent, sometimes a little higher than that, of Americans believe that abortion 
should be available with limitations. So Roe gets decided and then a plethora of laws pass aimed at chipping away at Roe and the court kept taking up those laws. I also think before we move into those laws, it's important to point out that Roe was really formulated around a trimester framework. It was set up with regards to viability, really focused on first trimester, second trimester, and third trimester. And they're going to move away from that because a lot of this, I think, happened because of the advances in medical technology. And so you're seeing premature babies being able to survive early and earlier in the even second trimester But I think from the beginning, that trimester formulation was problematic. And so you're going to see them move away from that as we get into some of these other cases. So first, you have the 1980 decision in Harris versus McRae, which upheld the Hyde Amendment, which passed in 1976 and bars the use of any federal funds to pay for abortion except to save the life of the mother. It was later expanded during the Clinton administration to include when pregnancy arises from incest and has a huge impact because of Medicaid. So... You see Congress step up and say, "Okay, well, if it's legal, then we're going to do everything we can to restrict access to it, beginning with how people pay for it. In 1989, the court considered Webster versus Reproductive Health Services. Justice Rehnquist was one of the two dissenting justices in Roe versus Wade. And Rehnquist tried in 1989 to organize a group to overturn Roe versus Wade. But Sandra Day O'Connor on the Supreme Court defected from her fellow somewhat conservative justices. I think the court was a little murkier then than it is now. And they were not able to do it. And she proved to be instrumental again in 1992 when the court considered Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which is really the second most seminal decision of the court on abortion. So this case was looking at a Pennsylvania statute that imposed several restrictions on abortion, including having a married woman inform her husband, having a minor get the consent of at least one parent, and mandatory 24-hour waiting periods. So the essential holding of Roe that the 14th Amendment protects the right to choose to have an abortion prior to fetal viability was affirmed. It was reaffirmed. But they abandoned that trimester framework, which forbade virtually any regulation of first trimester abortions, and replaced it with an undue burden test that Sandra Day O'Connor had long advocated for. Under the undue burden test, which basically held that a law could not place an undue burden on someone seeking an abortion, the court struck down the Pennsylvania's requirement that a married woman inform her husband before obtaining an abortion, but it upheld the statute's other regulations, including the 24-hour waiting period and the requirement that minors obtain the consent of at least one parent. So we move from Roe v. Wade that says if you're in the first trimester, you have an basically untouchable right to an abortion. Then we move into, okay, well, you still have a right to an abortion, but the state can regulate that. We're going to pump up the state's rights that were listed in Roe v. Wade to regulate abortion, and they can start putting these hurdles for you to jump over as long as they're not, quote unquote, an undue burden. The next important case for you to know about happened in 2006, Ayotte versus Planned Parenthood of Northern New England. That is Kelly Ayotte. She was at the time the Attorney General of New Hampshire. This case allowed courts to strike only the unconstitutional parts of an anti-abortion law without striking the entire law. And it made it harder for courts to strike down an anti-abortion law on its face. That is, before it can actually go into effect and harm someone who may later bring suit to try to strike it down. Then in 2007, you see Gonzalez versus Carhartt that upheld the 2003 Partial Birth Abortion Ban Act. 
It also did something else. It gave the court, quote unquote, a wide discretion to pass legislation in areas where there is medical and scientific uncertainty. So basically they're saying the state can step in and regulate even if there isn't great scientific evidence that the regulation will have an impact on the woman's life, on the fetal health, any of those things. They can basically use junk science to justify their regulations. In 2016, the court decided Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstedt and struck down key provisions of a state law requiring doctors who perform abortions to have difficult to obtain admitting privileges at local hospitals and requiring clinics to have costly hospital-grade facilities as violating a woman's right to an abortion. These laws across the country have been fairly successful in chipping away at abortion access. So that became kind of the new frontier, right? If we can't get this law overturned, then how can we de facto get rid of abortion happening by making it impossible for clinics to exist? So whole woman's health was very important in that regard, but the damage was kind of done. Six states right now in the United States have only one single abortion clinic left. Kentucky, Mississippi, Missouri, North Dakota, South Dakota, and West Virginia. There is only one place in the entire state where a woman can receive an abortion. So interestingly enough, 2016, the whole women's health case was decided by eight justices because we still had the empty seat. Okay, well, then we get Gorsuch. And most importantly, Justice Kennedy resigns and we get Brett Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court. And that leads us to the second thing you need to know, which is this new push with more stringent, more restrictive abortion laws that we're all seeing in the news right now. Ohio, Mississippi, Kentucky and Georgia have passed what has become known as heartbeat bills. Georgia's law like Alabama's, which we'll talk about in a minute, relies on the concept of natural law. And this is kind of a return to something that abortion opponents had largely abandoned for a while because it hadn't been successful in court. So natural law is the idea that there are principles in the universe greater than any law that human beings create. And moral principles that predate our Constitution and that are more important than our Constitution require us to view a fetus as a person and protect a fetus accordingly. I thought this was a really helpful summary of why this had been mostly abandoned for a while from Mary Ziegler, who's a law professor writing in the New York Times. She said, abortion opponents grudgingly recognized natural law could open a Pandora's box. If the Supreme Court recognized fetal personhood, the justices would probably subsequently confront claims about fetal rights in a variety of contexts, from social security benefits to tax law. Very early on, conservative originalist jurists like Justice Antonin Scalia called on the court to get out of this area. It was hard to imagine judges wanting to take on the even messier project of developing a fetal personhood jurisprudence. But Georgia and Alabama have gone back in that direction. Georgia's law is also a departure from where most abortion opponents have been because instead of just criminalizing abortion from the provider side, it would subject women who get illegal abortions to up to life imprisonment or the death penalty. Which, if you remember my compliment the other side, came up with regards to some Texas legislation, and even the Republicans in Texas were like, no, we're not going to do the death penalty to women trying to get an abortion. So I think what's really important when we talk about natural law in this these quote-unquote heartbeat bills 
is if you have no experience with pregnancy, then it's easy to hear six weeks and think, how could somebody not know they're pregnant at six weeks? Okay, here's something important for all of us to understand. All the women listening who've been pregnant understand this already, but just a quick review. Pregnancies are dated from the first date of your last period, which includes the two to three weeks of your cycle before and including ovulation. Okay, just basic biology. You are not pregnant (laughs) before you ovulate. So those six weeks could include two to three weeks of time in which you are physically not pregnant. So when you hear people talk about that, understand that two of those weeks, no pregnancy. Also, many women have a regular period. So even if they miss a period in the four to fifth week, they might not know they're pregnant because they might not regularly get their periods. And here is something I think is even more important. When you're talking about a heartbeat, quote unquote, at six weeks, It's not really a heartbeat. What they call it is cardiac motion on the fetal pole, medically speaking. And you cannot detect that with an abdominal ultrasound that we all see over the big pregnant bellies in the movies. The only way to detect that is with a transvaginal ultrasound, which is a long pole, basically. Miserable pole that they stick up your vagina, not to be explicit, to look for it. So right now, the law doesn't require transvaginal ultrasounds. It's going to be left up to the state health department in many of these states. What's to stop them? What's to stop them from saying you are required to have a pole stuck up your vagina to detect this cardiac motion on a fetal pole? What's to stop them? Nothing, as far as I can tell. So you're talking about women being required to have a transvaginal ultrasound to see if there's cardiac motion that would disqualify them from getting an abortion. I think it's important as you consider that transvaginal ultrasound that in this period of the pregnancy, up to 10 weeks, it is possible to take a pill that performs an abortion. Many of us, when we think about abortion, envision a procedure that would involve a doctor essentially being in the same position a doctor would be in for a pelvic exam. And so you might think, well, what's the big deal with a transvaginal ultrasound? Isn't something like that going to be done to a woman's body anyway? And the answer is sometimes no. It might be that a woman has gone in to take a pill for an abortion and Suddenly, the state health department says, actually, if you want this pill, we're going to do this really invasive procedure to see whether we can detect a heartbeat or not. I think it's also really important when we're talking about abortion via medication, which you can take up to about the first 10 weeks in pregnancy, that these pills are available over the Internet and over the dark web at this point in human history. And... When we're talking about criminalizing women for getting abortions, it's not just women sneaking into the back alley that we all envision. I mean, this could lead to the imprisonment of a lot of women because these pills are available over the Internet if they wanted to go after people in that way. Which also calls back to mind some of those original 1820s-esque concerns about safety, and about whether you are getting pills that are actually safe for you to take. And where you're not being monitored. You should right. be monitored when you're taking those pills. We're going to take a quick break and we'll come right back. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? 
Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are going to last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love, though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors, and I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick-dry polish. They say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick-dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. So the third thing that we want to share, and this is related to the second, these outright bans on abortion and heartbeat bills are surging in popularity, despite the fact that public opinion is largely more nuanced about abortion. And I think Sarah did a good job talking about how some of that is related to a court change. States feel like, 
we have the court in place now where we could get five votes to overturn Roe versus Wade. I also think that it's possible some of these states feel there's a limited window on that because if President Trump lost election, Justice Thomas is rumored to be considering retirement. He's also advanced in age, as is Justice Ginsburg. So if you had a Democratic president, the composition of the court could change again. The other thing you should know is that public opinion has shifted pretty dramatically in the last year, which analysts attribute to the public reacting to New York and Virginia's bills on what is known in media as late-term abortion. Marist is reporting that Americans are now as likely to identify as pro-life as they are to identify as pro-choice, including a big jump in Democrats who identify as pro-life. Which I think is important to think about. So many Americans thought that what New York and Virginia were trying to do was very extreme and they had a reaction. And now we have what I think many Americans are going to regard as extreme on the other side of the coin. And so there's a possibility for a reaction to that. And I think Alabama's law is a good place to talk about what might provoke that kind of reaction. So Alabama's law is a total ban with no exceptions for rape and incest. It criminalizes the act of providing abortion with up to 99 years in prison for the physician. The only exception, and this is a quote, in cases where abortion is necessary in order to prevent a serious health risk to the unborn child's mother. This was something I learned during the research that I find particularly important and defensive. State Senator Linda Coleman-Madison proposed an amendment to the bill that would require the state to provide free prenatal and medical care for mothers who had been denied an abortion by the new law. Her amendment was struck down by a vote of 23 to 6. Every single vote in favor of the ban was cast by a man, and it was signed into law by the female governor, Kay Ivey. So that's pretty extreme and seemingly out of line with where polling has indicated Americans are on abortion. Since that has happened, I don't know about you, Sarah, my phone has blown up with messages from people, many of whom I know to be fairly conflicted overall about abortion, asking me if I think Roe versus Wade is going to be overturned. I do think this has really gotten the public's attention. And I think it's important that we pay attention because the principle in case law that says we follow what has already been decided is called stare decisis. It means we are a court and first we follow what the legislature says. And when that is unclear, we look to our previous opinions. We don't just go about saying, what do we think today? Because it's important for law to have continuity. It's important to uphold people's expectations once those expectations have been set. But the Supreme Court has recently, in a couple of decisions, been a little more casual about that than they had previously been. The first decision was last June in 2018. It was Janus versus AFSCME, and it was about labor law. It was decided five to four, and the court overturned a 40-year-old precedent that said a public employee who doesn't want to join a public employee union doesn't have to join, but they can be required to pay the portion of the union dues that goes to the bargaining and representation function because that benefits everybody. So the Supreme Court overturned this precedent, and it did in such a way that they'd been chipping away at it for years. And so it kind of was inevitable and not surprising because they had, in a series of decisions over six years, case by case, just whittled it away. 
I just want to let you know that if you are interested in the details of this case, the Janice case, that is one of the nightly nuances that we're going to make public. When this was decided, I did an entire episode really breaking this case down. And my conclusion, just to kind of not bury the lead is I really agreed with the reasoning of the of the decision. Like I agree in principle about where the court landed on this, but I disagree strongly with the opinion because it's so disregarded precedent as a principle. I mean, it just it essentially did what you are taught in law school that courts do not do, which is say, we just think they got this wrong. So we're going to make it right now. So they've done that again recently with a case called Franchise Tax Board of California versus Hyatt. Now, this is not related to abortion law. It's related to whether or not you can sue one state in another state's courts. But Justice Breyer, in his dissent, seemed to have a very pointed warning where he said, today's decision can only cause one to wonder which cases the court will overrule next. I mean, it feels like he's setting off a siren. I read this quote from Linda Greenhouse, the Knight Distinguished Journalist in Residence and Joseph M. Goldstein Lecturer in Law at Yale Law School in an article from The New Yorker that we'll put in the show notes. And I found this quote so chilling. She says, I've looked at this as a template for what might happen to Roe. And she's speaking about the decision in Janus. They could uphold this obstruction and they could uphold that obstruction and they could send all these signals. And it would take a number of years, not a huge number of years, maybe. And so if Roe finally falls, it'll fall with a little push of a pinky rather than a frontal assault because there won't be much left of it. So that leads us into the fifth thing you should know about where we stand on abortion law, which is that courts are working with these laws, and there are plenty of them to work with. Kentucky's heartbeat law has already been struck down. Mississippi's and Ohio's laws are being challenged. Georgia's and Alabama's laws are expected to be challenged. So Arkansas has a law that puts in a total ban if Roe is overturned. Louisiana has a law that would take effect if Mississippi's heartbeat bill is upheld in court. And you should also know that Decisions on these laws hasn't always broken down as you would expect. With respect to Louisiana's law that required abortion providers to have hospital admission privileges, Justice Roberts joined the liberal justices of the court. And I have a detailed breakdown of that case on the Nightly Nuance as well, which we'll make public so that if you're interested, you can hear more about that case. So Missouri and South Carolina are currently considering heartbeat bills. Tennessee's failed in the Senate and North Carolina's was vetoed by their governor. Liberal states are also getting ready for what the world might look like after Roe versus Wade. There are laws that would maintain or expand access to abortion, such as the laws in New York and Virginia. And we have seen similar proactive laws in New Mexico and Vermont that have been introduced and are gaining traction as well. So it seems like everyone is grappling with the possibility that we, because of the new court composition, because of where the public is, how divisive our country is right now, you know, you can see in the polling, we are losing our nuance about abortion. People are more in pretty extreme places about it. And everyone recognizes that we are at kind of a pivotal moment. Even though we've been at this for a long time, this feels a little different. Always after our five things episodes, we share our analysis of those issues. And we've talked about abortion many, many times on the podcast. Here is the discussion that you all voted as the most important that we had throughout the year. Sarah, as I was thinking about this conversation, it seems like there are two needs in our audience right now around the abortion conversation. First is to discuss 
what we think will actually happen with abortion law in light of all of the states that are passing very restrictive measures and outright prohibitions on abortion. And then secondly, I think continuing our efforts to develop ways that people can have grace-filled conversation when the debate is becoming more extreme all the time. I think that's right. Let's dive into the what do we think is going to happen next, a.k.a. what do we think John Roberts is going to do? It's a tough moment to be John Roberts. I think that most of the commentary I've consumed has been leaning in the direction of this court, the Roberts court, will not have a headline that says Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. That instead it will be more like death by a thousand or three or four cuts. I have been going back and forth about this. When I first started reading about the laws, I shared the quote in Friday's episode from the longtime Supreme Court reporter, and I thought, I I see that. I see the idea that they'll just pick away at it and pick away at it and pick away at it until it just falls over with a pinky push, right? But then there are moments when I think they've also set up this precedent for rejecting precedent. And I think about Justice Breyer's statement that what case will they overturn next? I can't fathom why he would put that in there unless he felt like it was imminent. I don't know. And does it matter? Like, does it matter if they, you know, either three things, restrict it till there's not much left, restrict it to where they can overturn it and it won't see that big of a deal or over just outright overturn it. I mean, Does it matter that much which one they do if they are restricting this access to this constitutional right to the point of no return? Like that's that's kind of where I'm at. Like I'm like, why am I why are we tearing ourselves in knots about whether he's going to do it through a thousand cuts or one? I've been all over the map on that question. There is a part of me that looks at the Alabama law, for example, and thinks, well, at least it's honest about where people are. It's honest about where the anti-abortion movement is right now. This is probably sounding like a very one-dimensional view of those laws right now. And we'll talk more about them in, in greater detail in just a second. But just legally analyzing it, I've thought maybe there's some value in the honesty here. Because the trouble with Roe versus Wade has always been it's not an intellectually pure decision from any angle. It's not a decision that you can legally follow in a really sound and steady way, the way we hope for with our with our legal decisions. And so in that sense, maybe there is something that would be more honest about the court just outright overturning Roe versus Wade and, and then seeing what we do from there as citizens. On the other hand, I'm really conflicted about that because I think the smaller cuts matter insofar as the whole underpinning of Roe is this constitutional right to privacy. And if you decide that there's not a constitutional right to privacy, then I worry even more about what areas of life the state will start to regulate without that explicit right at least in theory, embodied in the Constitution through judicial interpretation. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. No, I mean, I think that that is definitely a cause for concern. 
I think that Justice Roberts is smart enough to at least try to put into words that, well, we're overturning this, but there's still a constitutional right to privacy. Don't worry, everybody. We're not going to start regulating what birth control you can have. We're not going to start regulating how what medical procedures you must receive during pregnancy or if you have a miscarriage. I read this amazing salon piece from Dahlia Lothwick that we will share in the show notes. And she's talking about how she feels sorry for John Roberts. And she says, why then do I feel sorry for John Roberts? Because what keeps the Supreme Court in business is often the polite subterfuge of complex legal doctrine. We don't so much suppress minority votes as protect the dignity of the states. We don't so much enable dark money to corrupt elections as invite free speech. And we don't so much punish women for bearing children as celebrate God and babies. This is all the kind of democracy suppressive language the justices can get behind. It's why Americans don't riot on the streets. So I think whatever path that he takes, the death by a thousand cuts, the leaving the onerous restrictions already in place across the country as they are, or overturning Roe, they're going to dress it up and say, be cool, everybody. We're not, it's not as bad as you think it is. That's what they always do. I mean, I think that there is a little bit of what's going on in the Supreme Court right now, whether it be really kind of brazen behavior from Justice Alito and Neil Gorsuch or the sort of dramatic pushback from Justice Breyer and Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Elena Kagan and Sotomayor, that it's like the veil is getting lifted. You know, I went to law school. And I read these cases, and especially from the likes of Scalia, they are beautifully written. They are well-reasoned. But at the end of the day, when you know how everybody's going to vote, like, what are we, why are we pretending that there's legal doctrine propping up any of this? That's kind of like, I, I hate to be that cynical, but with abortion law, it's hard not to get there. I think we just have to ask ourselves what we want this institution to be, because the fundamental objection to Roe began before a whole movement decided to capitalize on people's deeply held religious beliefs, I think that's where a lot of the anti-abortion movement generated from a cynical view that we are going to manipulate people with sincerely held beliefs. But we'll talk more about that in a second. Before that, the main objection to Roe, and a fair one, I think, is that the court acted as a super legislature. We didn't have an answer to this in our existing doctrine, so they made up new doctrine. I think that's a very fair criticism. The importance to me of continuing to at least try to honor precedent and in, and work within the framework is that over time, even when the court occasionally acts as super legislature, and it has in some important ways, in ways that I wouldn't take back if I could, then they stay consistent. They say, here is the new expectation, American public, work with it. Whether you like it or hate it, here is the new expectation, work within it. If the court can sway as dramatically without having to work pretty hard at it as we're seeing with executive orders, I think America has a real problem. I think the balance between our branches is way off. And I know we're already inching in that direction, but this would take us a mile in that direction. And that concerns me. I mean, I feel like so much of this started with Casey when they basically were like, oh, well, this is the right decision, but we did it for the wrong reasons. We're going to shift these things around. Like, no matter how good the motivation was or, you know, if Roe was badly reasoned, badly decided or whatever, the second they undercut it and set up 
an undue burden test, I just think that's when it went off the rails. That's when it became, okay, well, if we're just trying to convince the justices that it's an undue burden, the more conservative justices we can get. I mean, we won't even talk about the fact that we're up there arguing before a lot of people for the conservative side of the aisle. It's all men. And we're trying to argue with them about what's an undue burden on a woman who's pregnant. We won't even get into the hypocrisy or ridiculousness of that situation. But it's like once they once they allowed that, they kind of opened the gates to, oh, well, you can restrict it. It just can't be an undue burden. So we went off the rails. Which was, I'm sure, both foreseeable and difficult to grapple with for the folks who wrote that standard. Because tons of constitutional law is just a balancing test. Mm -hmm. I mean, you hear about that all the time in law school. Everything's a balancing test, which means doesn't mean a whole lot and that the individual understandings of the people on the court are going to significantly impact the outcome. I think the folks who wrote Casey had plenty in front of them to know that that's where it would lead. And I think they also felt this is the best that we can do under these circumstances. It's hard. It's very hard. And in some ways, Roe and Casey's affirmation of Roe to the extent that it did affirm Roe have let the public go to sleep on this issue? Mm -hmm. Is that too strong? Well, I don't know if the public's gone to sleep on it. I mean, I think that moderates have gone to sleep on it. And as happens often in America, it's defined by the farther right and farther left side of the aisle. I had this realization when I was, you know, thinking about this and doing the research. Look, it's infuriating to see that all the votes in Alabama were men. But it was signed into law by a woman. And there are a lot of women leading the I mean, the leader you hear about over and over again of the heartbeat bill legislation was a woman, is a woman. And I thought this, the sort of emotionally manipulative part of this, when you're really talking about people's sincerely held religious beliefs, and particularly when you're talking about women, I feel like what happened is what so often happens when you are in a social movement, in a cultural movement where you're talking about people's rights, which is if we can just pit one group against the other, they won't realize that both groups are suffering and no one's really looking out for them. You know, if we can pit poor whites against black people, then they won't really notice that the fighting is to distract from the the imbalance of power at the top. And I thought... Man, the the worst thing that happened to the abortion debate is the idea that it's women versus babies, right? That 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 this this debate is really we need people sticking up for babies, and that this is the group that we're really protecting, that we're really making sure they have power inside the debate, or even fetuses. Even if you don't want to think about a fetus as a baby, and I understand that, but you know they're not served either. You know, if a, if a Alabama was some paradise for maternal health or child poverty or public education or literally any indicators of the health and well-being of women and children, then this would be a different conversation. But it's at the bottom of every stinking list. And so it's just even more self-evident that we are pitting these sort of sides against each other and both are losing. Neither gains. I just kind of saw that same pattern that so often happens in these debates where we are pitting groups against each other that really are on the same stinking side. 
I think that's a good bridge to the second part of this conversation. And as we start to talk about how we're analyzing this, I want to acknowledge that we've gotten some really personal, Mm -hmm. vulnerable emails since our episode on Friday. And we're grateful for your trust and for your willingness to share. We have listeners who've had abortions under devastating Mm -hmm. circumstances. We've had listeners who've had abortions and feel certain that they did the right things for themselves and their families. We have listeners who have been raped and chosen to remain pregnant and then miscarried. Incredible complexity and emotional trauma in those situations. We have listeners who are concerned about abortion access for transgender men and gender non-binary people. Listeners who've had abortions and regretted them and are now staunchly pro-life. Listeners who birthed children who could not survive despite medical intervention. People who've had IVF and worry about the impact of abortion laws on their ability to create families. It is complicated. Our listeners, I think, reflect America in this way. It is diverse. It is emotional. It is spiritual. And we want to honor as many of those experiences as we can in our own thinking and in our conversation here. And when you have the privilege, as we do, of hearing from people with such intense, personal, and different life experiences, for me, it has solidified how difficult it would be to write a law that really accomplishes what I believe is in almost anyone's heart about this issue. I think hearing from our listeners who have struggled with fertility issues are some of the most illuminating and enlightening for me. And they put me back in a space where I was thinking about these issues in a very different way when we were talking about artificial insemination and in vitro fertilization and the ways other countries handle it. I think the biggest mistake we made in our country is when we decided our values as a nation with regards to reproductive issues belonged in the courts and the legislators. I think the smartest thing they did in other developed countries is set up basically ethical commissions composed of doctors and scientists and religious leaders and philosophers and political scientists in a room. And they said, You guys need to work this out. Let's talk about all the different sides of these issues. Let's talk about all the impacts of these type of guidelines. And you come to us with a proposal. I think when we decided in the United States that all these different areas were just the Wild West and every state can do it different and everybody can set up different regulations for surrogacy and for sperm donation and for egg donation. I mean, I just I think it was a huge mistake. I don't necessarily think it's too late to go back. But this is not, if we have learned anything from where we are with this conversation, is that this is not the right platform in which to have it because it is too complicated, because it affects and touches too many different aspects of our lives as women and as men. And I think that if we could just step away and say, you know what, I don't think the court, the Supreme Court and presidential elections are really the best place to have these conversations. You're exactly right. And I really appreciate that leadership from other nations in setting up ethical commissions to think about where technology is taking Mm -hmm. us. As I was considering this conversation, I realized we don't do very well as a culture defining almost any of the issues at stake here. Mm -hmm. I think the vast majority of Americans and polling suggests that this is true believe that there should be an exception to any ban on abortion for rape. I think that's relatively uncontroversial. 
despite the fact that it is intellectually inconsistent, mm-hmm. right? If, you're, if your feeling is that life begins at conception and we're here to protect life, it's inconsistent to have this exception for rape. But we're humans and we're allowed to be inconsistent. And I think part of having intellect is, is the capacity for inconsistency sometimes. Well, and that's why if you put it with an ethics commission— Ethics are not about consistency because they're not writing law. That's right. You know what I mean? Like, that's why it's such a different, a better place to have that conversation. So taking as an example the idea that most Americans would say rape is a different circumstance, we're not great at defining rape in this country. Mm-hmm. We're certainly terrible at prosecuting it. We have rape kits all over the country sitting in storage rooms that aren't being touched. We have very public examples of how we don't believe the stories from rape survivors. And so here's the thing that perhaps we most agree on. But when you get into the details of that, we're, we struggle. And then I think about life and about where technology is taking us. And on both ends, from the creation of life to the termination of life end, there is such, you could say, progress, such innovation taking place that I'm not sure what life looks like to people in terms of the physical body, Mm -hmm. not even going into the realm of the consciousness or the soul. So I don't know how we write good laws in an area when What's even possible is almost a daily basis changing. We keep doubling down on trying to make this black and white. We refuse to accept any gravy because we put it on a platform that thrives off black and white and hard lines. And we just keep doubling down and doubling down and doubling down. And I think this hurts both sides. The idea that life begins at conception is understandably a nice, moral, bright line, but it is difficult. I'm so frustrated with the religious leaders who are like in these movements who are like, it's been clear from the beginning of human history as they are proponents of heartbeat bills. I'm sorry, I read the Bible. I don't remember them talking about a heartbeat because they didn't know what a heart was when they wrote the Bible. So this idea that it's like this easy black and white thing we've had since the beginning of time is just so foolish. And on the other end, I think as a woman who's carried four pregnancies, lost one, have three healthy children, like the idea that I'm supposed to treat what was happening to my body as just like an organ or a kidney, that's not quite right either. There's a lot of gray there. And I still call it a baby. And even as someone who is passionately pro-choice, you know, I believe that life is a gift. And I believe that what was happening inside my body during pregnancy was special. And There's just no room inside a conversation driven by bills like what's coming out of Alabama to let people feel comfortable in that gray area. And so we just double down and we lean into our own confirmation bias and we refuse to be curious. Look, I mean, I have worked and lived in reproductive health much of my life. And I got emails from listeners about things I didn't know about. I didn't know there was a condition in pregnancy that could increase your chance of cancer? I had no idea. Just things like that. We want to push them aside. We want to get it out of the way so that it doesn't dilute the moral righteousness we feel when we look at the issue as black and white. I think that when you get into what this is about, I made myself a chart with columns. Like, here's where I am legally. Here's what I think medically and biologically. Here's kind of where I am spiritually and ethically. 
And my spiritual ethical column was by far the longest. When I stepped back from it, I thought, well, that means that the state should definitively stay out of this, right? Because if it's really about religion, we have separation of church and state for a reason. And then as I probed that more, I thought, well, I bet that for almost any important law that I analyzed, I would have a longer spiritual and ethical column and should than any other column. And the state has certainly a role to play in many of those topics. So I don't think it's that the state has no involvement here. If I just step back and say, should abortion be regulated? In unequivocally, yes. The kind of space that you're in, the equipment that's used, and it's the standards for its sterilization. We don't want people who don't know what they're doing performing these procedures, right? There is a role here. It's just, what's the scope of that role? And I think that when you start to ask yourself the question, what's the scope of that role? And this gets to, Sarah, what you said about what you believe about what's happening in a body at the time of conception, you just get right to the heart of what you believe about humanity and the universe and why we're all here. I can't really analyze this for myself without getting to what do I think a soul is? And what do I think happens to us when we die? You know, it, it just takes you into really kind of dramatic territory. But I don't know how we better have these discussions without going there. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible. And skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable. Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code Podcast 15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. 
Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. I don't know, there's a part of me that thinks I got really good at thinking about these issues after having training in law school that says, yes, all those issues come into play, but we're not going to let them take over the conversation. And look, sometimes that works well in the law and sometimes it doesn't. But I think when you can say we're dealing with issues of life and death and souls and consciousness, and we still are going to have to push through with our limited knowledge and, and think up some regulations. And I know it's hard and it sucks. I mean, we had a torts law professor that we spent a lot of time on how you value life. And I mean monetarily value life. If someone has a wrongful death, what are we going to pay them? That's a thing we have to figure out in the law. And it's hard. Nobody wants to talk about that. Nobody wants to talk about that. We do value life differently, monetarily, every day in this country. And I think that's part of the reason this conversation gets stalled is because nobody wants to have the hard conversation about who are we valuing more, the woman or the fetus? Because what often happens in legal conversations is that we have a bunch of rights that bump up against each other. And no matter how you feel about when life begins, if you give a fetus rights, it's going to bump up against the rights of the person carrying it. So what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What do we, we have to deal with this in the law. When you're right to be a white supremacist, bumps up against my right not to live in fear. So it sucks. It's hard. It's not easy, but sometimes we just need permission to say we have to make tough choices. I read an essay and the headline was, we value women more than babies. And I thought, yeah, you know what? Please just say it out loud. There's a two rights here. And do I believe that a fetus is more than an organ? Yeah, I do. I get it. Do I believe the woman is more important? Yes, I do. I believe every woman is an expert in her own story and every woman has inherent value. And I don't see that. And I don't feel that a lot in this conversation. And I think that's why the emotions get so high is anytime you're talking to somebody based on their identity and what they're hearing from the conversation is we don't value you or we don't value you as much as we value this fetus. It's hard. It's really hard. Even in that tort law context, which I think is a good way to recognize that we use a lot to deal with hard and very big questions, there is flexibility. Mm -hmm. We don't have a law that says we always value a human life under this formula. Mm -hmm. 
That is a hearing where lots of evidence comes in and the individual circumstances are taken into account. And the truth is, if you had a car accident where a woman was carrying a child and the unborn child dies in the accident, the value of that death would be different Mm -hmm. depending on the circumstances. And so that's where I just, I, I really understand and hear people who have sincere beliefs about not just the opportunity, but the duty to protect more vulnerable life than their own. I get that. I really think that the best place for that discussion is in our culture, not in our laws, because the pure decision who gets access to this procedure and who doesn't, I just don't think we can write laws that really achieve what works in every individual circumstance. And I don't think we want a process where if you want an abortion, you have to go see a judge Mm -hmm. to decide if you're worthy of one or not. I don't think that's how we want to spend our resources as a society. I don't think we want, by the way, judges determining whether something was a miscarriage or not. Mm -hmm. I think we're in really dangerous territory here, even where people are, are getting there because of sincere intentions And ethics and principles, many of which I agree with, I do believe that life begins at conception. I don't think there's any other way around it. I believe that there is a soul. I believe that, you know, I I saw, I don't like the flippancy about that. I saw John Oliver talking about this, and he did this kind of whole thing about how a fetus is kind of a nothing. And I was offended by it. And I don't get offended very easily, but I thought this is just... This is so out of line with where I think most Americans are, and especially coming from someone who's never been pregnant. No thanks. Even if I am right there with you on what the principles involved are, as a lawyer, I can't figure out how to accomplish something that gets to those principles. I am a person who values life. I believe in the basic human dignity. I know so many people responded when we shared our conversation with Erin Wathen, where she says, I am personally pro-life and politically pro-choice and talked about what that means for her. I think a lot of people feel like they're in that space. But I do want to say I don't know where life begins and I don't understand souls. And I think when we as human beings push them through this binary, there is one or there isn't one, we're probably wrong. We like to think about things like that. But the small, tiny moments of connection and consciousness and philosophical wondering I've experienced in 37 years show me that it's never like that. It's never a light switch. It's never black and white. Souls and connection and these huge things we're grappling with, we try to put them in a framework for which they do not fit. Like, is I think the idea that there's a soul and then there isn't, or it's probably not right. You know, I mean, I think that that souls and the the psychic energy and connection that which I believe in and that my faith speaks to cannot be contained. And even our simplistic understanding of egg, sperm, and trimesters. Like, I just think it's just so much more than that. And we keep trying to force it through that filter to our detriment and to the detriment of the conversation 
which we could really benefit from. You know, I had been pots on a Patreon conversation that I'm going to post this week, and we talked about integral theory and these sort of evolutions of human consciousness, both societally and individually. And this conversation is just like having it is happening at such a low level. And I mean, I couldn't agree more that I think when we're dealing with something this big and this complex, you know, and this is this is a that we it does not belong in the arms of the government. I think that's a realization I've had through our conversations on the podcast where you force me for the first time to really think about what is the government good at? What is it not good at? We need to think about that before we sign it up for new things. And there is not a scenario, knowing what I know about reproductive health, looking at it through the lens of my own experiences with three healthy pregnancies and one lost pregnancy, in which I think the government is well-suited to make these decisions. That's why I lean so heavily on my fundamental principle that guides me in these conversations, which is a woman is an expert in her own life. And there will be women who will make bad choices. Let me be clear on that. There will be women who will make choices I would not make, who I would find heartless or cruel, who would have a number of abortions that I would find most likely abhorrent. But I can't find a better way. I can't find a better way. That's because I'm willing to face those scenarios so that we don't sacrifice women who must suffer, especially in the face of wanted pregnancies and miscarriages, through all these hoops and procedural regulations, which basically tell you over and over and over again, we don't trust you with this decision. That's all it says. We don't trust you. We think you need more time. We think you need more information. Or we just think you're immoral and are making a bad choice. And I'm not comfortable with that. And I never will be. I think that when we talk about whether we would make the same decision, I always try to remember there may be decisions that I disagree with based on what I can know. Mm -hmm. But I am so aware after having been through two pregnancies and births and as I mother these two girls that I adore more than anything, that what goes on in my brain in the arc of even a day is unknowable to anybody else and largely to me. Because it's really complicated. And so I don't want to sit in judgment of anyone because I recognize that what I can know about the person's decision-making process is always going to be limited. And that's another reason I don't want to probe these issues in court. And I recognize that we do that. We try to do that, at least, in lots of contexts. Almost all of our criminal law is about what is your intention? Mm And I just think trying to discern intention in a way that really gets at the heart of what's going on when someone chooses abortion is incredibly difficult and complex. I don't want to steer us too far off the path here, but to your point, Sarah, about the evolution of our thinking, I learned some things about myself just asking myself questions about this topic and about what a soul is. And I I decided, you know, I think here at 38 years of age, and I'm sure this will evolve over my lifetime, I believe that a soul is something that exists before a biological body exists and that outlasts a biological body. And in that way, I don't think abortion can end a soul. 
I just think it takes a different form and we move on. That is something that I would for sure not have said 10 years ago. You know, I've spent a lot more time thinking about these things, and I am sure that 20 years from now, I will be in a different place on. And that, again, is just we don't have a container for that kind of discussion right now. I do believe that kind of discussion is worthy in your families and with your friends. And instead of beating on each other on social media about what the law should be, I think this is a real opportunity to have some deeper and more interesting conversations than we typically have about what it means to be a human in the world. Because wherever you are on this topic, no one is persuaded by the beating on each other. We've been doing that for 40 years. Some of us are going to have to be warriors in the legislatures and in the court systems on this, but that's not everybody. And so if that's not your role here, replicating the behavior of the warriors is not going to change where we are as a culture. And so if you, like me, are not a warrior, right, this is a chance to say, hey, person I really disagree with about this, let's sit down and talk about what this means. We might learn some really amazing things about each other and about ourselves in the process. Can I shift the conversation a little bit about the role of men in this conversation? Yeah. I've been thinking a lot about this because I think we send, I don't know if they're mixed messages, but I think they're confusing. So one thing that's been going around for a long time, and it is exceptional, is Gabrielle Blair's. It started as a Twitter thread. She turned it into a Medium post. This is a mother of six, a Mormon. She runs the blog Design Mom, and she did this amazing thread that was basically like men cause 100 percent of unwanted pregnancies. Biologically, (laughs) the sperm is essential. Women could have orgasms all day, every day, and they're not going to get pregnant. But a man has to make the decision to orgasm and not pull out in order for a woman to get pregnant, basically. Not to wear a condom and not to pull out. And so not to mention that a woman can get pregnant two days a month out of the 12 months, but a man could conceivably impregnate women every day of the year. And I thought it was such a good pushback on the way that this conversation becomes to fall totally and completely on the shoulders of women. And at the same time, I do, I feel that same anger when I see all these men voting on something that affects women. It's like we haven't found a good way to detach the responsibility for getting pregnant from the burden of being pregnant in the conversation. And so I see men sort of being like like progressive men. I'm just going to step out and let the ladies talk. And I get it, but there's also a part of me that's like, no, no. We need allies, and we need you in conversation saying men are responsible for people getting pregnant. And let's talk about that, too, and not just say this is all about women. I mean, pregnancy is, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's this weird dance we're doing because of the, again, word of the day, complexity of the conversation. I think this is really hard because I am not comfortable making this space all about motherhood, when at the same time, I am constantly hoping for a deeper understanding and embrace of fatherhood Mm -hmm. in our country. When we talk about the creation of life and what life means and how we're going to support that life, I think it is critical that men be at the table. 
I think it is in the details of how we treat pregnancy mm-hmm. that I'm less interested in men's understanding, even men who are biologically and medically trained to understand those details as best they can. I'm just not sure that if you don't have the capacity to become pregnant, you can imagine what the fear of possibly being pregnant when you don't want to be feels like, Mm -hmm. what the plethora of emotions that come at you when you get a positive pregnancy test are, what the both trauma and life-giving beauty of birth can be like. I mean, I just... When we get to the details of what this means, I really do want the folks who have a holistic experience to be the policymakers. Yeah, it's just so hard because I think in the conversation itself, men were never part of the process because of, you know, patriarchy. And now it's like we can't get them to the table because we've said this isn't your realm when that's not true. You know, I think, like I said, I think the the idea that a pregnancy is a woman's sole responsibility is a biological reality and at the same time a societal construction. Both things are true. It's like I want in the the policy positions, the realms of power, I want the table filled for the first time in human history with people who understand what it's like. But at the societal and cultural conversation realm, like I want my boys to understand that this is absolutely your responsibility. This is absolutely a story and an an issue that will affect you. And to think that even if biologically, even if evolutionarily, there's a drive, which I'm not even sure I buy, there's a drive to, you know, spread your seed and move on, the psychological, emotional reality of creating a life with someone and then detaching from it is huge. And in forcing or raising awareness about that, talking about that, I think that would help men and women. And it isn't an on or off, right? I mean, everything about abortion in America suffers from our sense of duality. Mm-hmm. And, and that is an instinct that we have to constantly check in ourselves as human beings. I know I have this problem all the time. I'm constantly saying, well, this or that, when that's really the case. So maybe the question is not, do men have a role here? They clearly do. It's what is that role? And how can they be more aware of it in the conversation? You know, I was talking to my husband the other night. I, I got more upset about this over the weekend than I get over just about anything. I just had this moment. I think it's trailing on the way that I've been working out my feelings about Brett Kavanaugh's Mm -hmm. seat on the Supreme Court. Because for me, the fact that Brett Kavanaugh was confirmed combined with the totality of my life experiences, it solidified for me that my daughters and I and my friends and all of our beloved women listeners are not equal Mm -hmm. and are probably not going to be for generations. Now, that I know is going to sound just several bridges too far for lots of you. I was going to say accurate, but whatever. (laughs) I see you and I honor you too, but, but that's what that meant to me. 
And so then as you have these laws being passed in what is clearly a well-funded and coordinated effort across states, and then the the idea that this is happening and it's going to be decided by a court that includes this person, and I'm still working my feelings out about that whole situation and the conversation we had around it, it just got me very upset. And I was I was kind of losing sleep over it. And I talked to Chad about it. And in that conversation, I said, I cannot fathom living in a world where one of our daughters gets raped and she has to have that baby under the law. I can't fathom that. And he said, I just feel like that's kind of an extreme case, Beth, and everybody living in these extremes makes it difficult to have a good discussion. Now, I'm not beating up on him because that was honest. And if you can't have a safe and honest conversation, you're not going to go anywhere in these discussions. And I respect what he was trying to say. But what I realized, especially as I thought more about that, is that seems like an extreme case to him because he doesn't walk around Mm -hmm. in the world fearing being raped. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't talk to people who've been raped. And there's this whole set of life experiences that seem extreme on his radar because he's a really good person who would never harm someone else, who would never take something from someone that doesn't belong to him. I want it to seem extreme to him. Because that says so much about who he is. At the same time, we know that it's not an extreme case. And even if it were, it is so intense and so important that it cannot be ignored by our laws. And so this is a meandering way of saying men are critical to these conversations and also just spending some time understanding what their roles can be, and what limits their perspectives relative to people who've had these experiences, I think that's really important. It's the same way someone sent us a message about being inclusive in this discussion of transgender men, and I thought, I really want to do that. And also, that's going to take a lot of work because my capacity to understand that experience is going to be necessarily limited for my entire life. I think there is a part of me that thought... Hillary Clinton lost, and so there won't be a backlash. And I feel like every day, every month, including these abortion laws, is just a reminder like, no, that's not how backlashes work. The emotional nature of this debate is just the trauma we all feel that started with the brazen language of Donald Trump the repeated reports of sexual assaults and the fact that he was elected, these new limitations on reproductive rights, the appointment of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. It's just all of it adds up, and it's just hard not to feel like everyone thinks you're less than. Like you said, like we won't be equal. And it's heartbreaking and it is infuriating. And I just, you know, I get in my head and I'm having these conversations everyone's asking us to have. How do we do this? How do we do this? When everybody just thinks it's murder. And it's like, I want to look at people and say, okay, let me go there with you. Let me say, Or put myself in your shoes and believe that abortion is murder. One in four American women will have an abortion. Do you believe one in four American women is a murderer? 
Is that what you think of us? Is that what you think about women? Is that 25% of us are murderers? Either because we're so heartless and careless or because we're so stupid and we don't get it? And that is what's so hard. And I don't have a lot of great advice about how to have a conversation when that feels like what you're arguing with. I don't. I think that there's so much on the line here. And the only guidance I can give is to be gentle with one another. But I don't even know how to do that when the topic is so traumatic and so personal for so many of us. I just don't. And so I guess in the same way that I say, that both of us say when we talk about abortion, we have to get comfortable saying, I don't know. I'm going to have to say when we're talking about abortion, I also have to say, I don't know, guys. (laughs) I don't know. I burst into tears reading these articles. Having a conversation about this stuff without getting incredibly upset seems impossible on most days. It does. I think being gentle with each other is always really good advice. It also helps me not to sound like a broken record to just think about, like, what's my work to do here? Because my work is probably not to try to convince someone who thinks abortion Mm -hmm. is murder that it isn't. My work might be to take us to a different place or to just build some trust so eventually we could have that discussion. I mean, I think a lot about the honesty that is required to have a good discussion when you're in different places about abortion. And it made me think about all the ways in which we are comfortable with killing other people as a society, you know, and how we are not honest about that because we keep looking for science and technology to give us ways to do the ultimate violence without feeling like we're violent people. We want to drop bombs via drone. We want to do lethal injection for the death penalty because that's more humane, right? We want to do all of these things where we take life from people and we do it as a society and we say that there is justice in our having done so, but we don't want to feel like we're killing in the process. And I think that line of thinking cuts a lot of different ways when you're thinking about ending a pregnancy. Getting more honest about all of that, though, and teasing out the fact that sometimes we say, yes, we end life, and under the circumstances, that might be the most just result, I think that's important to trying to figure out whether a total ban on abortion makes any sense. And for me, it doesn't. And that's a conversation I'm willing to have with anyone at any time because I am more convinced as my life rolls forward that I am here to try to be a peacemaker. That is not everyone's job, though. And so maybe the best thing we can tell you is be gentle, be aware of where you are, and think about what your work is to do. I think always sharing your own personal evolution on the topic is helpful and sharing your own experiences. It's the like the advice about that they give you in marriage therapy. You know, don't speak in broad generalizations about society or culture or this is wrong or this is right. I mean, you use I statements. I feel like this. I used to think this. 
then this happened to me and now I feel like this. I mean, I feel like that might be one of the best, healthiest ways to even begin to talk about this. I think that's true. The one thing that creeps up for me when I hear you say that is just, man, for the past three years, we've just been saying, American women, please bear your souls. Mm -hmm. Please share the worst, most horrific, most damaging thing that's ever happened to you so that someone might care about it. I do too. And I hate that. And so I totally agree with you. And I also want to say, I do not believe that it is everyone's job to spill that stuff in front of whomever because we're trying to educate the world on your life experiences. So I... Man, it just takes me back to being gentle. I think you're right. Sometimes that's going to be exactly the right thing to do. And sometimes be gentle with yourself and and give yourself permission to not go there. Well, thank you for being gentle with us in this conversation. Again, the emails and support we have received and heard have been unbelievable. I'll be thinking about them for the rest of my life. And I thank all of you for being gentle with us and trusting us with your stories. And we hope that you go out and think differently about this topic and are better equipped to have those conversations with those you love. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Thank you for being here with us all year. Thank you for voting for these episodes and others. We will be back in your ears on Friday a little late because, you know, the debate's Thursday nights. We got to have a little time to talk about it and get it produced and out the door. But we will be with you on Friday and look forward to it. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. Thanks for making us sound better, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our managing director, which means we could not make it without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Our executive producers are Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, David McWilliams, Joshua Allen, Linda Rucker, Martha Bernatsky, Melanie Cravey, and Tiffany Hassler. Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.